So we're on this portion of uh, John, uh, the chapter of John, where we are um, talking mostly about pruning. And, um, and so, you know, I was wondering, can any of you recall specifically uh, in your own life when you felt like you were being pruned? Anybody ever, did you give some thought to that this past week? Uh, I'd even take a show of hands if anybody wanted to say, like, you know, I think I was being pruned during this time. Anybody think of Yeah, Joy? Oh, you're just showing your hand. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, yeah, what I want to do is you, you feel free to share. If you, if you feel like you've had this experience in your life when you were, I probably didn't articulate that clearly. Sorry, Joy. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so you had a significant heart issue uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, very good. So you, you had to reassess your life. It caused you to reassess your life in terms of how you spent your time? Yeah. All right, very good. Anybody else? Any other pruning examples that you might have in your own life? That, Yeah, Jim? You came to the promised land. You went from Irv Chaudee to the promised land. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Part of the pruning process is this old adage, uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? What you can't see now, you do see later, and you realize the value, the you know, the purpose, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a great example. Someone else over here? Yeah, Rocky. Oh, yeah? What are you saying? I mean, she wasn't even demanding. I mean, those girls need a lot more credit than they give them. Sure. And you only had one patient, Rob. Pardon? You only had one patient. I know. I only had one patient. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because Bonnie can't really do much for herself at all with her foot. She has a knee. She has a knee scooter, and that really took a lot of. Yeah. She can get around pretty good. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Someone else? Another person? Yeah, Frank. Yeah, we can make that happen. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great account, a great story, God's faithfulness. Yeah, uh, Jeff, you want to? Yeah, yeah, I feel I've been pruned by you. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For a simple reason, you made a statement about you got to be all in for Jesus. Yeah. And I tell you what, I think about that all the time. Is that and, right? And huh. even like when we're down at Hilton Head. Yeah. At St. Andrews. Yeah. You know, and, and I'll be talking to somebody and, you know, they'll say, well, I said, you either got to be all in for Jesus or you ain't making it. Yeah. Simple time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you tell them that. But I, I, that really struck with me when mm-hmm. you said, you've got to be all in for Jesus mm-hmm. or it ain't going to work. Mm-hmm. There's no trying Jesus. Right. You don't try him. He's either Lord or he's not. He's either worthy or he's not. You know, you can't, you, you know, there's no like putting your toe in the water and thinking, do I want to jump? It's jump. That's That's the requirement really is so great thank you one more person that may have something to share oh 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 yeah ada i'm sorry yeah <laughs> so um, it's a matter of, um, and I thought I was okay, you know, in terms sure. of my, my walk with mm-hmm. Christ, but 
Now, here's the thing with all that you've shared, and many of you, I'm sure, have your own stories about being pruned. A person who is pruned, who produces fruit from that pruning, is a survivor. A person who is pruned, but produces no fruit from that, is a victim. Does this make sense to you? You either do something with that pruning or you don't. And if you survive, you produce. If you don't, if you don't survive, then you identify yourself as a victim and then you probably need to be pruned more. I mean, you know, it's, uh, that's kind of how it works, right? So, yeah, there's someone, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a great distinction. I wish I'd thought of that. I would have said, I would have used your very word. I think that's a great distinction to make. Yep, you thrive. I think if you're pruned uh, and you, you do something with that, you thrive. Uh, because pruning stimulates. I mean, that's the whole goal. It's to stimulate growth. So, um, so we're going to talk more about that uh, today. Um, I am going uh, to spend a little time this morning amplifying a bit more of what I was talking about yesterday as I was preparing for the sermon. I just felt like this was important to include. So, um, so uh, you know, we talked about why we were pruned, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, and then we're going to, hopefully we'll get to how we are pruned, uh, how God prunes us. And so, um, and you know, look, um, every time I come up here, I, I want to, like, I have in my mind, this is what I want to cover and and then you know I, and then I'm done with this and I move on. But that's just not always how it works, uh, especially when I stand up here and start talking. Sometimes I, honestly, I just get hijacked by the Holy Spirit, and I just feel like He wants me to cover certain things that, as we go along. So, so you know, I hope that you can be cool with that. You can be patient with that um, because that's uh, I want it to be organic. I don't want it to be rehearsed or anything like that. So. Now, we haven't read it for a couple of weeks, so I just want to go ahead and read John 15 again to refresh our memory of this particular passage. And as you're turning to your Bibles in John chapter 15, uh, I I stand by the statement I made last week that I think this is one of the seminal passages in the New Testament. That that, that the principles included in this passage uh, you will find throughout the whole of the New Testament uh, in many different ways and variations, but they are there. So, uh, John 15, 1, uh, Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit, of itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me so just real quick I I do want to say something about I mean 
you, have you ever seen an air plant? You know what an air plant is, right? They don't have to be planted in dirt. You just put them in a bowl or something like that, and they just take the nutrients they need from the air. You just have to water them some. We are not air plants. You know, we, we have to be connected to a particular thing in order to get the nutrients that we need in order to produce and to thrive and to grow uh, and, and to produce. So uh, we go on to verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. (coughs) By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And you did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that, that's verse 16, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So taking this one verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, where he says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser, Jesus sets himself up, as you'll recall, as the true vine. Israel declared itself or called itself the vine, but Jesus said, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Now here's an interesting thing about this particular text. Uh, In an earlier chapter, chapter 6, 44, uh, we have a kind of a, almost a precursor to this statement, John chapter 6, 30, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. No one who comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now look what we can insert in there. No one comes to me unless the Father the vine dresser, who sent me, the vine, Jesus is the vine, draws them, and I will raise them up to save them at the last day. So we have this very powerful statement where no one comes to Jesus unless the Father brings them. And so we have here this very clear connection where uh, Jesus says, my father's a vine dresser, I am the vine, and you are the branches. So if you are a branch, you are only connected to me because of the Father. It's the only reason. Because of what the Father, the vine dresser, has done. He is the one who has arranged that. It's the Father. So then we come then to verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, this word, and it is one word, uh, takes away, is ero. Um, that word ero takes away means this: to bear away what has been raised, carry off, to move from its place, to take off or away what is attached to anything, to remove. 
to carry off, to take by force, to take from among the living, either by natural death or um, by, and I'm sorry, that, that uh, text fell off there, and I, it, it's not on my um, slide either. So, But you get the point. This is kind of a dramatic statement. I mean, this, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, 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 ominousness here that any branch in me that does not bear fruit, some of your texts read, he cuts off, right? How many of you have that? He cuts off. Probably literally that's what it means. He cuts off. Any branch in me that he, that he has, that he cuts off. And then we go further down where he says, in every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it bear, may bear still more fruit. That word prunes is the word kathario. Now, kathario literally means to be made clean. Kathario literally means to, be, to cleanse of filth or impurity. To prune trees and vines from useless shoots, from guilt to expiate. The pruning of God in our lives is oftentimes designed to remove the, the filth or impurity in our lives. Literally. So later on in, in the following text, he says to his disciples, Now you've already been made clean, Kathiro. You've already been made clean. So he's working this word here, saying to the disciples that you've already been made clean. But there's still this pruning process where uh, God works in our life to remove those things that are corrupt, that are harmful, that are impure, because they compromise the branch's ability to produce fruit. Now, I've said this here in the past, I'll say it again. You know, the text where it says that our righteousness is as of filthy rags. You know, any of our righteousness in comparison to God's glory, God's holiness, it looks like filthy rags. The implication there is that even in a room like this, you know, where we have many wonderful people, that all of our righteousness, the best that we can produce here in this room, reeks of sin and corruption next to the holiness of God. Reeks of sin and corruption next to the holiness of God. Our best effort in comparison to God's holiness is incredibly tainted. And it's his purpose and project in our lives to diminish that reeking of sin, to dissipate it, to remove it, to correct it. Um, and so, um, And so we should want that. I mean, really, like, have you ever... Have you ever uh, like washed your clothes and then you left them in the in the washer for like a day or two long on a hot day, and you threw them in the dryer, right? And then you pulled them out and you put them on without thinking, and then 
You're, you're sort of doing this after a while because they smell sour. And you're in this public forum and you're really hoping nobody else smells these clothes that just really smell sour on you. Wouldn't you want somebody to tell you that? Like if you were not aware of it, but somebody else said, hey, did, did you know that your, you know, your sweater, your, your whatever, you, you'd want to know before you ended up there. If we, if we reek of sin, we would want, we should want, we should desire that to be removed from our lives. That just because it's normal, just because we've become used to it, doesn't mean that it's good. I mean, think about all of the normal things in our culture right now that alarm you, but that are considered to be good and healthy. Really? I mean, they're normal. Look, in an insane asylum, to be insane is normal. Because normal means everybody is like this. But just because it's normal doesn't mean it's healthy or good. So what do we see in this particular verse? Every branch in me, Jesus says, one that does not bear fruit is taken away. It is removed. It is cut off. Now, he says, every branch in me. So he's not, talk, he's not talking about the, at least here, it does not appear that he's talking about the unbeliever. He's talking about a branch that is connected to him. We could get into a long conversation about what Reformed people think and what Wesleyan people think on this particular text, and it would take me a long time to do that. But either way, whether you are Reformed or whether you are Wesleyan, it's not good. If we are not producing fruit, it's not good. So whether you believe that this person was never saved, or whether this person, you believe this person was saved, but because they did not produce fruit, they were cut off, regardless, that condition is dire. It's not good in any way. So these kinds of passages always should demand of us a kind of diagnostic question. If I believe that I am connected to the branch, then does it follow that I am producing fruit? And if I am producing fruit, what does that fruit look like? And how would I know? How do we know in this room, how do we know that we are producing fruit? What would any of us say? What list could we comprise about how we are producing, or no, the the list of things that we know that are fruit, that are productive, that are of, of God, that make a difference in the world in which we live? One of my pastors in the, in, in the past used to say <clears throat> that when we arrive in heaven, all of us are going to be surprised by who's there and who's not there. And, and almost precisely because of this thing right here. Because there are a lot of people who are converted to Christ here, but they are not converted to Christ here. About 12 or 14 inches they miss heaven by. 
And so there are many people in our world today that would be cultural Christians. They were raised in a Christian church. They believe in the Judeo-Christian worldview. Um, They're basically decent people. They do good deeds. But none of it really emanates from a deep and abiding sense of belief in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The second thing that we can take away from this particular text is that God prunes. So for those people who are connected to him, if there's a branch that does not produce fruit, he cuts off. If there is a branch that is producing fruit, he's going to prune. He will prune it. And anybody who has ever pruned knows that initially when you prune whatever you prune, you cause trauma to that particular plant. On some level, you've just traumatized that plant. And if plants could feel things, they would feel pain because of the things that you cut off from that plant. So in both cases, whether they are a branch that it, that it abide, whether it's a branch that is connected to the vine or, and doesn't produce fruit, or whether it's a branch that is connected and it is producing some fruit, in both cases, it's all about the production of fruit. And I think one of the great projects for everyone here in this room, for this church, and for your faith in Christ is to, to consider over the course of this next year exactly what kind of fruit you think you can produce and are called to produce this next year. What would it do? What would it be like if we woke every morning with this idea, this commitment, that today I am pursuing this particular thing because I believe that through it and because of it, I will produce fruit on behalf of Jesus Christ. That I'm not going to while my hours and minutes and days away anymore. That each of them are going to be lived with passion and with intentionality. And with joy and purpose and love and all of those kinds of things. So these are texts that are, I mean, again, I just want to say, no one hearing, hearing these words from Jesus, no one hearing these words could have missed the huge importance and the significance and the ominousness of these statements. No one. But it is true, if you're like me, you can read that a couple dozen times over the course of your lifetime or more and not get the fullness of what it's really getting at and the importance of its application in our life. So the vine dresser, that is the father, providentially works or prunes in our life, the life of the believer to produce fruit optimally for the vine or in the vine. Now, as I've stated before, there are some biblical texts that are out there that I think really complement and serve to enhance uh, this particular um, passage of Scripture from, from John. And so I want to explore a few more of those today. But I want to begin with this, as I do. 
Because I want us to understand that it's by grace that we've been saved. It's by grace that we've been saved. But God's grace is not an entitlement. It is a gift. And there is a huge difference between those two things. God does not owe us his grace. In fact, that works at the very opposite of what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. And entitlement is something that you do deserve. But I want to say this to you. I think that most Christians today operate out of this matrix of grace being an entitlement. That because God is love, he's kind of obligated to extend his grace to us. And he is not. He gives us his grace because he loves us and because it is, it's a gift. Now, we've all been in circumstances in life where you go to a birthday party or maybe a Christmas party or whatever. And there might be a person there that we bring a gift for. And when they receive the gift, they receive it as if it was an entitlement. <clears throat> like you owed it to them. Children can be that way a lot of times, you know, during Christmas or a birthday. You know, like, you owe this. No. No, for most of us, when we give a gift, it's because we make some kind of sacrifice to, to get that and not get this. To provide that, but we can't provide this. And so we give. Because we want to give and because we love. But if we feel, if we sense that the, the gift that we are giving is received as a sense of entitlement, how do you feel? Are you offended? Well, most of us would be. We would be offended by that. Because we want them to understand that on some level, that most of the time the gift that we give was given out of love and sacrifice. Not because it was owed but because we love them so much, we were willing to deny ourselves in some capacity and give to them. And so it is with Christ. This is a watershed distinction. <clears throat> and this is an important thing, I think, for all of us to remember as believers. Now, Paul says in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed now, so obedience produces fruit. Obedience produces fruit. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This would seem to underscore this idea, or my statement, that grace is a gift, not an entitlement. That we work out our salvation through fear and trembling. We understand that God give it, gave it to us as a gift. And so out of a sense of reverence, we continue to uh, work our salvation out through Christ. In other words, we live out what uh, was promised to us and what we have promised to him. We live that out. 
Understand and live knowing that God's grace is not an entitlement. It is a gift to be revered and used for that purpose. Now in Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20, Matthew says this. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So this is another complimentary passage, not from John, this is from Matthew. Completely different tradition, but carries with it many of the same kinds of principles that we've been talking about from John 15. So he's making this distinction and says, look, if you have a healthy tree, because that tree is healthy, it can only do what healthy trees do, and that is produce good fruit. It, out of its nature, it produces what it is. But if you have a tree that is diseased, then it's going to produce diseased trees. When I was a kid, and my mother opened the door at 7 o'clock in the morning and let us out in the summer, and we didn't come home until the streetlights came on at 7 o'clock in the evening, sometimes when we weren't collecting bottles that you could cash in to get money to buy some food with, we would look for things like fruit trees that had apples. Anybody ever do this when they were a kid? And, uh, and so uh, you knew within any walking distance what trees produced good apples and what trees did not. You knew. And it was so disappointing to see an apple tree from a distance. You were hungry. You would walk up to that apple tree and you would see it, it was filled. The apples were filled with worms. Like, ah, I'm not going to eat around those worms. I'm not going to eat this. What's that? It's a bonus. <laughs> it's a bonus. Yeah, so uh, I guess that was too discriminating. But, uh, but in any case, that's what we, that's what we did. And so um, the disease tree, the tree that was full of worms, produced apples that really could not be eaten. Now, sometimes a disease tree has nothing to do with worms. It has a disease. Now, because that tree is diseased, it may spread its disease to other trees like it, right? Also, what do we read here in verse 19? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Why? Because it's a diseased tree. And that disease may spread. Maybe, maybe, maybe it would be fair for me to say every branch that is diseased, you cut off so that that disease won't spread to other branches. When I was raising potatoes two or three summers ago, um, I had a blight uh, hit my potatoes. And I tried to save my potatoes by cutting off the branches that had been blighted. I was hoping to save them, but the blight had spread from one plant to another plant to another plant, and I lost the whole lot. So 
Are we trees that produce good fruit? Or are we trees that produce disease? Now, I, I, I think I know where most of you are in this way, and I, I don't think any of you are diseased trees, but are there people in here that really have parts of them that maybe there are parts of their lives that maybe could be cut off because that part that isn't so good could spread to other parts that really are good? So, and then here's the kicker, of course. Verse 20, you will recognize them by their fruits. In the same way that I recognized that apple tree and the condition of those apples, were they worm infested or were they free of worms? If they were worm infested, I wanted nothing to do with that tree. If they were good apples, I couldn't go back enough. And I would fill my pockets with those trees that were producing good apples. I wanted more. And not only that, but when I was with friends, I would say, hey, I know where this apple tree is. Let's go over there and we can get some apples. And I would share with other people the good news of where these other apple trees were. So, What kind of fruit are you and I? What kind of fruit do you produce? Well, the first place, one of the first ways in which I think one of the first categories that we can explore would be the fruits of the Spirit. Are our lives full of the fruit of the Spirit? So I don't have this as a part of my message this morning, but I would encourage everyone here by saying, look, one of the very clear ways that we could produce fruit in our lives or know that we are producing fruit in our lives is if our life exemplifies the fruit of the Spirit. The Christian who has the fruits of the Spirit in their life are unmistakable. They are not invisible. You see them from a mile away. The fruits of the Spirit really are so compelling, so poignant, that if a Christian's life has them in, in their life in any, any significant way, then your life speaks. It shouts the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just does. Don't you know people like that? Don't you know people that just have this wonderful faith in Christ and in every level that you've, I'm sure they're not perfect, but in every level that you've gotten to know them, you see how their life speaks and how attractive they are as people and how you'd like to emulate much in your life that you see in theirs. So just spending a few minutes on why does God prune us, I broached that question last week, but I do want to amplify a little bit more because I I think it's important to do that. Why does God prune us? And it's because we are corrupted and we are imperfect. Imperfect action can only produce imperfect results. Which led me, as I was thinking this morning, this idea of 
this is a $64 word, but it's an important word. What is ontological perfection? So this word ontology is a philosophical study of being. So the existence of this podium can be explained in a relatively simple manner. The existence of fauna or plants can be explained, but it's a more complex discussion about what the purpose is and the existence of those plants are. The existence of human beings is a very complex question. The being of who they are is a very complex question and takes a long time to have conversation about. And the more complex a thing is and the more corrupt a thing is, the more challenging it is to fix it. So what is ontological perfection? Well, uh, without flaw, without corruption, absent of deficiency, completely whole. And so the question becomes for all of us, you know, and I think I know the answer because it's the same answer is probably the same for you as it is for me. Am I without any flaws? No. Am I without any corruption in my life? No. And by the way, I think that this is, um, this is sometimes problematic. You know, there's a certain branch of, of the Christian faith that believes in a thing called Christian perfectionism. Have you ever heard of this before? It used to be much more a part of, even in the Alliance Church, in, uh, in what, how we used to teach sanctification. In Christian perfectionism, is, it, means, it, it basically means that you can, through the, the guiding of the Holy Spirit, you can, you can crucify the sin in your life almost entirely. And that in this world, you can live pretty close to a perfect life. Um, and, um, and, and, and that has been, I think, more problematic than it's been helpful uh, in the history of the church um, because there's, uh, there, there were a lot of people I've known over the years who, in public, were very good at portraying themselves in a certain way, but in private were a completely different person altogether. So, um, so we don't believe in Christian perfectionism. We believe that Christ perfects us over time through a process. Um, and so uh, we'll probably talk more about that. But without flaw, without corruption, an absence of a deficiency. So ontological perfection means that there's no deficiency. It's, it's perfect as it is. It doesn't need anything more, and so it's completely whole. It's the work of Christ to provide in our lives, that, to work in our lives this process of ontological perfection, that he wants to remove all of our flaws. He wants to arrest and eliminate all of the corruption, that uh, wherever there's a deficiency in our life, he wants to fill that, and he wants to make us completely whole. Now, who would not want that? And if you don't want that, why don't you want that? So perfection in Christ as the end or criteria for salvation. Um, So here's this, just follow me on this. If we are imperfect, can we use imperfect means as the end to become perfect? Is that possible? 
In other words, will imperfection plus imperfection equal, I'm sorry, imperfection plus imperfection always equals imperfection, right? It's just the way it is. Um, so for us to become perfect, so if God is perfect, can he use as a perfect means as an end for us to become perfect? So if you'll take it, go on to the next slide. Uh, I'll say it again. If God is perfect, can he use a perfect means as an end for us to become perfect? Can perfection plus perfection equal perfection? That's exactly right. And that's God's project. That's his plan for our lives is to make us, to begin to make us in this world as perfect as we can so that we practice for the afterlife. Because in the afterlife, we will be perfected. Uh, But we enter into this trajectory where he wants to work in our life to remove all of the imperfections so that we can become perfect uh, as a result of that. Because understand, and I'm going back to this uh, text uh, back in uh, in John uh, 15 too, if it will not or cannot be corrected, then it will absolutely be eliminated. If God, um, if something will not allow itself to be corrected, or if it cannot be corrected, then it will be eliminated. I think that's very clear in terms of what he's saying. So, understand then that, you know, look, it's, I think it's a work of grace. This pruning thing that God wants to do in our lives is a work of grace. I'm going to skip some slides here, and I just want to go back to what I talked about last week, and I want to, I think, conclude with this. I talked about uh, Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who will release me from this body of death? And I shared with you about how the Romans had a, a form of torture where they would tie a a cadaver, a dead body, neck to neck, chest to chest, arm to arm, waist to waist, knee to knee, and that you had to live out the remainders of your days with that dead body tied to yours. And that Paul likens sin as that dead body. So when I say to you that our righteousness is as of filthy rags next to the holiness of God, that's kind of almost the image that that our sin clings to us like that in compare and it looks like that in comparison to the holiness of God. And then I raised the question last week and I ask you, um, what would you think if you encountered somebody who had a dead body tied to them in that manner and you said, How horrible, what an awful thing that must be? And the person said to you, Well, you know, really I've kind of gotten used to it. It's kind of normal. I've, I've grown accustomed. I've learned how to work around it. It's a workaround. How is it possible that you could work around that? Now, if I can extend the metaphor even a little bit more, even if you found somebody that had a dead arm tied to them, or a leg, and they were trying to go through life acting normally. 
Do you think, well, let me just ask, I ask you this question. Would your life be qualitatively compromised if you had a dead, a whole dead body tied to you in that manner? Would it impact every kind of work and relationship that you had? Would it do it? Yes, it would. But even if you had part of that dead body tied to you, would it still impact the quality and nature of the kind of work that you would do? Absolutely. And so it's God's plan, and it's to, uh, to cut that body from ours, to cut that sin out of our life so that we can produce the kind of fruit. But all of that comes through pruning, because the truth of the matter is, is that many of us fall in love with certain portions of that dead body, and we don't want to let it go. But God says, no, I want you to let it go. I want you to experience the joy and the wholeness and the completeness and the purity that I, have in, that I have in store for you. I want you really to become like my son because he is perfect. I want you to do that because as the more of that body that's cut away from you, the more productive you can be, the better you can serve me, the more fruit that you can produce. And But not only that, the more of that dead body you cut away, that I cut away from you, the more that I cut away from you, the more you can actually do for the people that you love. That you can really uh, care for them better, provide for them more, protect them more efficiently. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I think I've met my fair share of people in life who, apart from Christ, when I saw them, they looked like they had a dead body completely encompassed around their... And their lives were so compromised. And then I've known some of them people, and I'm thinking of a particular one, a kid that was in my youth group years and years ago, who really entered into a very dark part of the world in almost every conceivable way. I remember he called me once. I was going to campus, uh, the Coalition for, Christ, uh, Coalition for Christian Outreach at, at the Jubilee Conference at the Hilton Hotel. I was living in Lancaster, Ohio at the time, and I arrived there with some uh, college students, and I get this phone call um, on my cell phone, and... Uh, I mean, I hadn't talked with him for over 20-some years. And I remember uh, saying to him, well, I'm kind of like at this conference. He said, well, I'm in Pittsburgh. Is there any way that I can meet you? And I said, well, okay, yeah, if you can, if you can come to the Hilton, we can just go to the, you know, the lounge or the restaurant down there or something like that and talk. And so I'm telling you, as soon as I saw him walking down the hallway towards me, you could see the darkness in his life. I mean, I wasn't being judgmental. I, I could see his struggle and his pain. And I can remember when he was in my youth group that he looked different than that. There was a different image. And we sat down and talked, and he began to share with me all the stuff that he had done in his life. I mean, there, 
the list was pretty long. There's not much that wasn't off the list. And he basically asked me if there was any hope. Now, I can't tell you at the time whether he was connected to the branch or not. I just know that this was a person that was trying to find some kind of escape from this sin that clung to him like that dead body. That you could see, I'm telling you, if you saw, if anyone in this room saw him, you would, you would have had the same experience I had. You would have, you would have thought, this, this is not a healthy person. This is a person that's in deep trouble. So we talked more, and then we talked some after that. And he said to me, he said, I, uh, I forget what, which conversation this was, uh, uh, one of the later ones, but he said, I'm going to go to Tacoa Falls, and I want to I go into ministry, but he, he still was in bondage. And not only was he in bondage, but he wondered if he could ever be forgiven for the things that he had done. So, many of you have heard of a guy named Brennan Manning. And uh, Brennan Manning was uh, very popular at the time, a former Roman Catholic priest who, by his own words, came to faith in Christ and who was an alcoholic, a gutter alcoholic, who came to faith in Christ and experienced the grace of God in this really incredibly profound way and had an unbelievable way of of sharing that. I would encourage you to read anything that he's written. And I gave him some tapes that I had of Brennan Manning that I had heard when I was at a youth specialty convention. And this man listened to those tapes all the way down to Tacoa Falls. And he called me up later and said how he had listened to all of them. And he said, I got to tell you, I almost wrecked the car so many times because I was in tears just, just hearing about the grace of God and how he could free me from those things in my life. And I'll shorten the story. He went into ministry and is still in ministry to this day. But he needed pruning. Was raised in a Christian home. His father was an elder in the church, well-established elder in the church. Was in church every Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening. So he took this, you know, what I, I guess maybe in the best case scenario was a, a, a trip of the prodigal son. And in the very midst of his prodigalness, God called him. And he knew that if he was going to be a person whose life was going to be productive for Christ, that he had to cut away this stuff in his life. And he had to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way. So I would just say to everybody here, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, and I'm going to be talking about the Holy Spirit next week, but if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and to me, to us, 
about those things that need to be cut away in our life so that we can produce more fruit, so that we can live more freely, so that we can love others better, then let's do that. Let's heed the words of the Holy Spirit. Let's hear him say, life can be better. This is not normal. It's not God's normal. It's not what is good for you. You and I are in bondage to this dead body called sin. And it needs to be cut away so that you can be more productive and so that you can produce more fruit. So that's why it's important that we be pruned. So next week, for sure, I'll be talking about how God prunes us.